Well, good morning again. We are glad that you are here. And in this series, we've started a couple of weeks ago, we've been looking at four of the most common struggles that people have to deal with. And in the very first message, we talked about anxiety and the problems that come with that. Last week, we talked about addiction. And by the way, if, uh, if you haven't seen all of those or if you would like to hear it again, all of that is online both in form of podcast as well as you can get online and actually watch each message. So that, that was what we've done the first two weeks. Today we're going to be talking about depression, and I've changed the schedule a little bit from what I've told you the last couple of weeks. So here's what we're going to do today, talking about struggling with depression. We're going to do a part one and a part two. And uh, really, part two is when I want you to come back. So I hope that you'll be here next week, all right? Because we'll get into the meat of it next week, but hopefully give you a lot of good stuff today as well. So Today and next Sunday, struggling with depression, and then next Sunday night, we'll be talking about struggling with grief, struggling with grief and loneliness. Now, I told you that in the cabin that I've been going to recently that uh, there's a journal there where folks can write their prayers out to God and write about their struggles, and, and they leave the journal there for everyone to read, and it gives you an opportunity to pray for the person as you read through the journal. This is from that journal that you see on the screen Uh, There on the desk, this is one of the entries in that journal. It says, today has been a very hard day. I almost ended my life. I'm not exactly sure why I'm still breathing, but I am. A dear precious friend of mine brought me here one time, that is to the cabin. And as I got in my car today, after almost dying, I knew I had to come here and just be with God. The struggles seem to never end in my life. My health is poor. And I'm so alone. Even in a room full of people, I feel completely alone. My mother committed suicide, and I fight against those awful feelings every single day. Please pray for me as I struggle to survive. She signed her name, April. I want you to hear what she said at the end of that again. Please pray for me as I struggle to survive. You know what April is saying? April is saying in that journal entry, this is not the me I want to be. This is not the me I imagined. This is not the me I dreamed I would be. This is not the me I want to be. There's something wrong in me. This is not the me I want to be. Unfortunately, April is not the only one struggling to survive. Roughly 20 million people in the United States suffer from depression every year. Let that number sink in for a moment. 20 million people. The prevalence of adults with a major depressive disorder is highest among the age group of 18 to 25. Let that sink in for a moment. 18 to 25-year-olds is that group who struggle the most with depression. Depression has been called the common cold of emotional illness. And it's called that because eventually it touches everyone. Eventually it's something we all probably have to struggle with on some level. Depression is no respecter of persons. It affects all people regardless of age or race or sex or geographic or social position. A large portion of the population wake up every day in a deep, dark gloom. After the first service day, I had several people as, I, as they were leaving say, Pastor, that's exactly what I've gone through. Maybe that's what you're going through as well. Maybe you're one of those who are part of that 20 million, and you know what that deep, dark cloud of depression feels like. 
I did some research as a preparing for this series and for this message, and I found out that there's basically three major causes for depression. There's other reasons, I'm sure, but here's the three major causes. One, of course, is there's the physical cause. That is, you can get so run down physically, so depleted physically, so exhausted physically, that, that you keep pushing yourself and pushing yourself, and, and then if there's any kind of a crisis any kind of an incident, all of a sudden you can find yourself falling into a deep, dark hole. There's the physical cause for depression. There's also the chemical cause. When the brain's chemical messengers called neurotransmitters are healthy, we are too. But when those neurotransmitters get low or get imbalanced, they can trigger major depression. Now I know some people have said, you know, I don't like taking this medicine. I don't, I don't, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say that I take medicine for this, this chemical imbalance in my brain. I want to say something to you. Just pause for a moment and say something to you. Don't be afraid to take the medicine for chemical imbalance if the doctor says that's what you need. I have a, an imbalance in my blood pressure. I take three different blood pressure medications just to keep my blood pressure regulated. That's not counting the stuff I take for uh, rheumatoid arthritis and, and for high cholesterol. I take those medicines because I need them. And if the doctor says you have a chemical imbalance in your brain, that's no different from having an imbalance in my blood pressure. Take the medicine if the doctor says you need it and don't be embarrassed by it. And no, your wife didn't ask me to say that. Okay? <laughs> There's also a spiritual cause to depression. Satan wants God's people depressed so that God can't use them like he would like to. You see, often spiritual warfare is at the root of our problems, or at least it manifests itself in the, in the midst of our problems, making them worse. I read to, this week, as I was preparing for this, I read a book from a pastor, a pastor who suffers from depression, and he said this, one of the statements that I just kind of highlighted and marked and remembered, he said, nothing is more depressing than being depressed. I thought, that's exactly right. And if you were struggling with depression, then I'm sure you would agree. And the last thing that you need today, the last thing that you need is some cliches and a pat on the back. The last thing that you need today is for me to stand up here and give you some biblical cliches and pat you on the back and say it's going to be better. You need to know that there is hope, and you need to know that your life can get better one day. And more than anything, you need the truth and the wisdom that comes from God's Word. And so today and next Sunday, that's what we're going to be focusing on. We're going to be focusing on the truth and the wisdom of God's Word because the Satan is a liar he is a thief, he is a destroyer, and he wants to destroy you. But your life can be different and your life can be better. You hear from the Lord. So today I'm going to begin by just kind of talking about what depression is or, or, or trying to give you a better handle on it. Talk about how God can work in our lives. And then next Sunday, please come back. We're going to dive deep into how God can make a difference in our depression. So let me give you the first thing. Write this down. Please take notes today. Please take notes. Here's the first thing I want you to grab hold of today. And if you don't get anything else, I hope that you at least get this one. And it's this. Being depressed doesn't mean that you are a bad Christian. Being depressed doesn't mean that you're a bad Christian. You see, the enemy says, 
If you were really walking with God, if you really had faith, if you were really reading your Bible, if you prayed like you should, you wouldn't be depressed. And the translation, the enemy basically says this, good Christians don't get depressed. I want you to hear me, I want you to hear me clearly. That is a lie from the pit of hell. I love the realness of the Bible. I love the fact that when I look in this Bible, I see the positive side of people, but I also see the negative side. I see their victories, but I also see what they struggle with. Now, we don't do that very much in our society, do we? In our society, we try to put the best face on. This is most evident in social media, isn't it? Whether it's Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, we're trying to show people the positive side of our lives. We generally don't get on there and show them the negative side of our lives. I mean, just yesterday, I was on Snapchat, and one of my buddies posted this picture. He, he was smiling ear to ear, and he was holding two old, big old bass that he had caught. And, and so I was pretty impressed. I was pretty depressed because I wasn't fishing, but I was pretty impressed with what he had. And so you know what I did? I got on Snapchat and I started posting pictures and videos of the world's greatest grandbaby. That's better than two big old bass any day, I guarantee you that. The world's greatest grandbaby. We were there uh, Friday night and, and yesterday and, and you know what I found myself doing? I wanted to take the perfect picture. And if it wasn't perfect, I'd do it again. Oh, turn her, turn, fix her hair, fix her hair, turn her. Smile, Lily, smile, smile. I try my best just to get the perfect picture so I could put it out there. On the videos, we were at an outdoor restaurant. The music was playing, a Mexican restaurant. Music was playing, and she was dancing around. And, and I, I took several videos just trying to get it just right. Lily, dance again, dance again, Lily, dance again. Just trying to get, you know why? Because we always want to put our best side out there, don't we? We want to make sure that ever we want to portray as best we can that our life is perfect and our life is fun and our life is happy and we are successful and our family is great. But listen to me. That's not what you see in this book sometimes. What you see in this book is not the fake of social media. What you see in this book is the reality of life. What you see in this book is, is people who who struggled. You see, the Bible is amazing to me. If the stories of the Bible were just about people who were always good and they're always great and great and they're always godly, who could relate to that? Because you're not always good, you're not always great, you're not always godly. But what we learn when we read this book is that godly people, underlying, godly people had faults and godly people had problems and godly people had difficulties just like everyone else. So, the question is, do good Christians get depressed? Of course they do. They always have. Some of the mightiest heroes of the Bible struggled with dark, desperate times of depression. Some of the heroes that you read about in Hebrews chapter 11, the great Hall of Faith chapter, some of those heroes in the Hall of Faith chapter struggled with deep, dark days of depression. Let me show you, not all of these are in the hero of the faith chapter, but let me show you some examples just from the Bible. Now, to save time, I'm going to put them on the screen uh, because there's so many that I want to show you. But let's just put them on the screen. First of all, let's look at this one, Moses. How would you rate Moses? Let's just talk for a moment. How would you rate Moses? Would you put him up there as, as a man of God? I hope you would. I hope you'd put him up there and say, I'll tell you something, that, that's like one of the greatest men in the Bible. 
Look what Moses said. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, put me to death right now. If I have found favor in your eyes, do not let me, uh, do not let me face my own ruin. Moses said, God, if this is how you treat your friends, I'd hate to see how you treat your enemies. Just put me to death right now. I can't take it anymore. Moses, great men of God, experienced depression. Let me show you another one. Job. Now, first, first of all, when you hear Job, if you know your Bible, you say, well, of course he was depressed. But do you remember what God said about Job, the kind of man that Job was? In chapter 1, God said this about Job, There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. If we were to stop there, we would say, he's not even, it's not even possible for him to get depressed. There's no one, no one on earth like him. He's blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. But look in chapter 3, after this, after what? After the crises that he went through. After the great losses he, he experienced. After this, this man who was blameless and upright, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Verse 11, why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the, from the womb? Verse 21, Job spoke about, in verse 21, Job spoke about those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than hidden treasure. They long for death, but it does not come. Verse 26, I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Let me show you another one. Jeremiah, again. Probably you'd rank Jeremiah pretty high as one of God's servants, a man of God. Jeremiah said, curse be the day I was born. May the day my mother bore me not be blessed. Why did I ever come out of the womb to see trouble and sorrow and end my days in shame? I don't want to live like this. It's what the man of God, Jeremiah, the prophet of God was saying. Let me show you one more, Jonah. Now, of course, when you, if you know Jonah, you say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Jonah was not that good of an example. Oh, oh, really? I know he had his flaws, but do you remember that after he repented, God used that prophet to bring a, a revival to the entire city of Nineveh? That God's hand was so on him, God so used him and blessed the message that he shared that the entire city of Nineveh repented? I'd say that's pretty good. And yet after all of that, he came crashing down, and this is what he said. It would be better for me to die and to live. You see, the spiritual giants of the Bible who were used greatly by God often suffered from depression. It is a lie of the enemy to say good Christians don't get depressed. Anybody, including you, has that potential. Second thing I want you to get is this. This is so important. Depression is a feeling, not a life sentence. Do you remember what Jonah said in chapter 4, verse 8? He said, it would be better for me to die than to live. And I bet some of you have thought that, haven't you? I bet some of you have felt that. I bet some of you maybe even have said something like that. Because depression can be so dark that death looks like a better alternative. If you've struggled with depression, you know that, don't you? It was deep enough. You know that death actually looks like the better alternative because if you kill yourself, at least this will end. 
If you kill yourself, at least this will be over. The pain will be over. The suffering will be over. The struggle will be over. The hurt will be over. But let me remind you, it may be over for you, but it will be just beginning for those you leave behind. The pain and the hurt and the struggle will just be beginning for those that you leave behind. Suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And it's never a good solution. Why do you think that taking your life looks like the best option? It's because you believe the lie from the enemy that says, you're always going to be this way. Your life's never going to be any better. Your life's never going to be any different. You're always going to struggle with this. You're always going to be this way. But I want you to understand, depression is a feeling, not a life sentence. Depression is a feeling. It's an emotion. It won't last forever. Sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, right? But my emotions don't last forever. Sometimes I feel good, sometimes I don't. But, but my emotions don't last forever. Emotions are temporary. Now, I understand, I understand some of the ramifications of depression, that it can go on for months and months or even years and years and years. But my point is simply this. It doesn't have to continue the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be a life sentence. One of the best examples of that and how deep depression can be and how depression doesn't have to be a life sentence is found in the, in the book of 1 Kings. I want you to turn there. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about a man named Jer- uh, Elijah. And then next Sunday, we're really going to dig into his life. His story is found in 1 Kings 18 and 19, the prophet Elijah. It's interesting, this story of Elijah, because... In chapter 18, he is a man of God who is standing in front of the 450 prophets of Baal. He is serving God. God is using him mightily. He is bold in his faith. That's all in chapter 18. In chapter 19, something flips the switch. Chapter 19, he's running for his life. In chapter 19, he's not a man of God. He's a man on the run. In chapter 19, he is discouraged and defeated and depressed. In chapter 18, he's standing on top of Mount Carmel. In front of everyone, in chapter 19, he's hiding in a dark cave by himself. Something happened to this great man of God. Elijah lived during the days of wicked King Ahab and his sinister queen Jezebel. We'll read about his story beginning, the second half of his story, beginning in chapter 19, verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, May the gods, little g gods, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. Now, this is just my theory. I'm not sure that, actually I think I read this somewhere, but I agree with it. I'm not sure that she was really serious. I'm not sure that she was really going to kill him. Because if she was really serious about killing him, why didn't she just send someone to assassinate him then rather than send a messenger to him to say, hey, tomorrow I'm coming after you. Why give him a day's notice? I think she was just trying to run him off. I think she was just trying to scare him and run him off. And it worked. Look at verse 3. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Remember this. Remember that statement. He was afraid and he ran for his life. Remember that. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the desert. Now let me give you a little geography lesson real quick. 
The Bible says that, that he went from Mount Carmel, which is in the northern part of Israel. We were there just in January on top of that mountain. He went from the northern part of Israel down about 115 miles to the southern part of Israel in a place called Beersheba. Now, Beersheba was the southernmost uh, city in Israel. It was like the border town for Israel. It was right before you go into the Negev Desert. When you went to Beersheba, you went as south as you could go in Israel. It's kind of like in the United States. If you go to Miami, you pretty much have gone as south as you can go in the United States. So that was Beersheba. It was southern, southern, southern part of Israel. And beyond Beersheba was the Negev Desert. And so he went there with his servant that far for 115 miles. And he went to Beersheba. And let's see what happened. This is so interesting to me. Verse uh, 4. While he himself went a day's journey into the desert, that is, he left Beersheba, went by himself into the desert, the Negev desert, a day's journey, he came to a broom tree, and he sat down under, and he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Now get this. Up in verse 3, remember it says he was running for his life? You know why he was running for his life? He wanted to live. He was running for his life. He wanted to live. But after he ran 115 miles, fled 115 miles from Mount Carmel down to Beersheba, after four or five days of doing that, by the time he got to Beersheba, he fell down, sat down under this tree, and by the time he had got there, depression had done its work in him, and he said, Lord, I don't even want to live anymore. So tired. so discouraged. I acted like a coward. I took off and left. I don't even want to live anymore. Do you see how it changed just in four or five days traveling from Mount Carmel to Beersheba? I was thinking about the different types of turbulence that I've been in in, the, in planes somebody told me after the first service, said, Pastor, I was yet and done that. My mama was here today for the first time, and she's going to get on a plane for the first time tomorrow. I said, whoops. <laughs> there's, there's basically three different kinds of turbulence if you've ever, ever flown on a jet airline. You know, there's kind of what I would call the light turbulence, where it's just kind of, I mean, you know, you, you, it's not too bad. It gets your attention, but it's not too bad. You're just kind of bouncing around. And then there's sometimes when the pilot comes on and says, um, ladies and gentlemen, buckle your seats. We're about to fly into some severe turbulence. And when he says severe, I've been in sometimes where it was like this. I've been in one time where my head hit, my head hit the ceiling. I came out of the seatbelt and my head hit the ceiling. I, in those times, it will scare you to death. And it will sometimes make you sick. There's a third type of turbulence. And thank the Lord I've never been in this one. The third type of turbulence, it gets so bad that he'll send the plane into a nosedive. Now, Elijah was in a nosedive. By the time he had gone from Mount Carmel and he had gotten to Beersheba and down into the Negev Desert, by the time he had gotten there, he was in a full-fledged nosedive. He said, Lord, I don't want to live anymore. Just take my life. Where you are if you're struggling with depression? Kind of where would you rank yourself? Would you say, oh, I'm kind of in that... You know, that light turbulence. It's not fun, but it's okay. I'm kind of making it through the day. Or it might be that you would say, I'm in the heavy turbulence right now, and it's, it's just flat out scary, and, and it's really tearing me 
a, a part inside. And I just, some days I just wake up sick, and some days I just want to pull the covers over my head. I don't want to get out of bed, and you're in that heavy turbulence. And it might be that some of you are here today, and you say, Pastor, if I'm honest, I, I'm in a full-fledged nosedive. If something doesn't happen, something doesn't change, I'm not going to be here much longer. Because if something doesn't change, I'm out of here. I'm in a nosedive. That was Elijah. I've got a question for you. Does, does the fact that you know God, should that make a difference in the way that you handle depression? I, I like to say it this way. Knowing God doesn't exempt you from depression, but it does give you an advantage. Does that make sense to anybody? The fact that you're a Christian? The fact that you have a personal relationship with God, it does help you get out of depression and to deal with depression. So for the next five or six minutes, I want to talk to you about this third thing. And then next Sunday, we're going to dive deep into it. So again, I invite you to be back next Sunday as we dive deep into how knowing God makes a difference when you're depressed. Knowing God makes a difference. And I'll show you that in the life of Elijah. And here's the, the, just one point of that, that, and we'll dig into it next week. But the third point of the message is this. Write it down. In the middle of your pain, God is still present. In the middle of your pain, God is still present. I love this part of the story. Go back, chapter 19, pick up the story in verse 5 again. Verse 4, take my life, I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and he fell asleep. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. So he's asleep and all of a sudden the angel comes, hey, hey, wake up, wake up, wake up. You need to get up and eat. And the Bible says in the next verse that he looked around and he saw, look what he saw, it's amazing. He looked around, trying to find, he looked around, verse 6, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. And then what did he do, church? He lay back down again. This guy is exhausted. He ate. It's kind of like some of you today. You're going to eat lunch and you say, I think I'm ready for a nap. That's what he did. He ate and then he decided, I'm going to go back to sleep. And he did. And so God's in heaven saying, I need you to go back down there. He fell asleep again. Verse 7, the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and he ate and he drank and strengthened by that food, he traveled how long? We're going to talk about that next week. Forty days, forty nights, until he reached Horeb. Let Let me just give you a little hint about next week. He traveled about five days from Mount Carmel to Beersheba and the Negev. And then he traveled 40 days, 40 nights through the Negev. And when he got where he was going there in the Negev desert, 40 days later, he was still depressed. His depression had still, he still struggled with it 45 days later. For for a month and a half, for a month and a half, he's been struggling with this depression. For a month and a half, he's dealt with the gloom and the darkness of depression. Of all the enemies and all the giants that Elijah faced, perhaps none devastated him as the giant of depression. And so in verse 9, when he gets to Mount Horeb, oh, by the way, Mount Horeb is a significant place. It's also called Mount Sinai in the Bible. Mount Sinai is the place where 
Moses saw the burning bush. Mount Sinai was a place where when the people of God were coming out of Egypt, they met God there at Mount Sinai and, and established the covenant to be God's people. Mount Sinai was a place where God gave them the Ten Commandments. This was a holy place. And guess where Elijah wound up? As he wandered in the desert, the Negev Desert, 250 miles, 40 days and 40 nights. And guess where he ended up? He ended up at Mount Sinai where God's people had started out with God. And he goes to a cave, verse 9. There he went into a cave, and he spent the night. Now, just walk with me for a second. Just walk with me. He was at Mount Carmel, 115 miles, goes to Beersheba, leaves his servant at Beersheba, goes a day's journey into the desert. So now he's by himself, a day's journey in the desert. Now keep walking with me. He travels 40 days and 40 nights across the desert. There is not a person on the planet who knows where he is. But there is a God in heaven who knew exactly where he was. How do I know that? Because in the very next verse, next part of the verse, in nine, verse 9, there he went into a cave and he spent the night and nobody on the planet knew where he was. Nobody was with him. Nobody had a clue where he was. But God knew, and the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? I love that. I love the fact that in the middle of his pain, God was still present. Even though he tried to run away from everybody, God was still present. Even though he got into that dark cave, because the darkness just seemed to fit what he felt, God was still present. God knew exactly where he was. And I say to you today, God's not forgotten you either. He knows you're hurting, and he knows where you are. And he knows what you need. And if you have given up on life, God has not given up on you. He's in the cave, waiting to speak to you. And we'll talk about that next week. But he's in the cave waiting to speak to you. And he said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? You remember what David wrote in Psalm 139? David said, oh Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and you know when I rise. You perceive my thoughts even from afar. You know what I'm thinking. And then he said, you discern my going out and my lying down. And then he said, listen to this, you are familiar with all of my ways. That is, God, you know everywhere I'm going. You know everywhere. You see, knowing God doesn't exempt you from depression, but it does give you an advantage. Because when you reach your lowest point, in the darkness of the cave, God will speak to you and say, what are you doing here? You are still mine. You may be discouraged. You may be defeated. You may be ready to end your life. But I just wanted to meet you here because I wanted you to know you are still mine. And oh, by the way, I still have something for you to do. What are you doing here? Elijah. Bow your heads with me. Every head bowed. Every eye closed.
I, I told you a moment ago, no one else looking around, I told you a moment ago that when you know God, it gives you an advantage. It doesn't exempt you from depression, but it gives you an advantage when you know God. And my, my point today for you is if you don't know God, this would be a wonderful time for you to have a relationship with Him. You need Him so desperately. Now, you may have friends and family, maybe even counselors helping you through your depression, and I'm glad that they are there, and I'm glad that you have that. Glad that you have that support system around you, but you also have something else available if you'll turn to it. The one who created the heavens and the earth, Almighty God, will also be your resource. Psalm 46.1 says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. God is. If you can't say that, if you don't know God in a personal way, I want you to know that He wants to know you. He wants to know you so bad that He allowed His Son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross in your place for your sins so that there would be a way for you to have a relationship with the Holy God. And the way that you can have a relationship with the Holy God, though you, are, you and I are not holy, the way you can have that relationship is simply to admit that you are a sinner and believe that Christ died on the cross for your sins and confess your need that you want Him to be your Lord and your Savior and invite Him into your life. You just repent of your sin and say, Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me of my sin. I believe you died on the cross in my place and I invite you into my life. I invite you into my mess. Make me a new person. And today, you can know God in a personal way with just a heartfelt prayer, something like that. I'd love to talk to you today as you come down to the front, or you can just come and pray by yourself. Ask Christ to be your Lord and your Savior. Or Christian, you can come and pray. Maybe there's, a, there's something that you're struggling with. It might not even be depression. It may be one of the other things that we've talked about, or maybe it's something we haven't even talked about, but you're struggling, and today is the time for you to come to this altar and say, God, I'm so glad I know you, and I'm here today to admit I need you. So, Lord, we just want to ask for your help, for your intervention, that lives would be changed by your grace. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.